Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the new guy. I uh, am just delighted to be back. Uh, if you're new and visiting, wondering why I'm starting this way, uh, this is my first Sunday back after a sabbatical that started earlier this summer. And I just, uh, before we get to the important work of looking at what God's word has to say to us this morning out of Mark chapter 5, I just want to take a few minutes and first of all, thank you for sending me on a sabbatical. Uh, it was refreshing time. Uh, I was able just to deal with some things in my heart that... Uh, had been kind of put on pause and needed to be dealt with. I was able to simply read my Bible and pray and enjoy it in an unhurried fashion, uh, listen to some mentors, connect with my family, and do just a little bit of fishing, um, which was all wonderful. And in more than one way, I found it to be a time that was healing and helpful and deeply refreshing. So thank you. Uh, I, and I really mean that. Um, when I walked back into the office on August 30th, uh, I, was, I walked into the building before I got to my office and just felt a sense of gratitude to be able to be here as part of Westchester, to be one of your pastors. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine who's also a pastor, and he goes, man, I just did not want to go back after my sabbatical. And, and he just must not be at a church that's as good as you guys, because I really was was chomping at the bit a bit to uh to get back and so i'm so grateful to the lord that, that i get to uh have the privilege of teaching the word here at westchester and of walking with the lord with you um, i do want to take this as an opportunity to, to to plug a couple of things for those who may be interested first of all and this is um very much kind of building it as we go um I don't know if you've heard, but there's a lot of new refugees coming to town. Uh, particularly what, what sparked this is what's, uh, there's, there's currently, uh, last I heard, 50,000 Afghan refugees at different military bases in the U.S. awaiting processing, and they will be sent to various cities in the U.S. One of those cities is Des Moines. We are one of the, I think, three cities in the Central District of the Free Church that will be getting Afghan refugees. And not only that, but for those of you who have lived in Des Moines for a long time, you know that we have just part of the fiber of our city is refugees come, and that's a great thing. Uh, but there's a, a unique role the church can play in that. And this is, this is something God's been opening my eyes to uh, recently through some uh, neighbors of mine I've gotten to know over the last few weeks that God's opened that door for me. Um, but the refugees coming to Des Moines that need help are, f go far beyond the borders of Afghanistan. And uh, one of our sister churches in town has a program that they do in, in bringing in families where they, they partner with USCRI and uh, they basically outfit an apartment uh, for a family coming, and then they meet them at the airport with signs, uh, maybe a few gifts, and then USCRI takes them uh, to the, the apartment that's been furnished by a church, and then maybe some people from that church then start building relationships with that family, helping them get to things like doctor's appointments, helping them find Walmart, helping them find their school that their kids are gonna to go to. And these are very important things. If you are interested in being a part of a ministry, being part of like a ministry team 
that would help us as a church love refugees as they come in, I'd love to talk to you. We're going to be having a training uh, here at the church on October 9th from 11 to 1.30. Lunch will be provided. Um, and we're still working on some more details. If you're interested in that, contact me. The second thing I want to plug to you is when we started preaching the book of Mark last spring, I started a group of guys called the Expositors Fellowship. It just seemed like a cool name. And uh, what this group of guys do, do is they study the text with me, and we meet, uh, we were meeting the Wednesday before the passage was preached to go over it. Now, after sabbatical, we're meeting about 10 days before, so it's two Wednesdays before the passage is preached. So this Wednesday night at 8 o'clock at the church, we'll be going through the second half of Mark 5. I have a set of questions that we do with studying that go over things like structure, observations, uh, gospel connection, application, things like that, context. And so if you're interested in being a part of this Expositors Fellowship, uh, please email me, cmullican at westchestercares.org. Uh, or you can, if you can't remember that, uh, just call the office and we'll, we'll make sure we get you what you need to come and thoughtfully partake in that discussion this, um, this Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. So that is that. Um, now it's time to, to get into the Word, and, uh, and let's pray. Father, we long for the satisfaction that we just sang about. And we, we long for your help and your aid in our lives. And we have, this week in particular, through remembering the events of 20 years ago, we have just had so many reminders of what a deeply fallen world we live in. And that's on a grand scale. And, and maybe through our own individual lives, we've had a lot of very personal reminders of how broken and sinful our world is and our own lives are. And so, Lord, as we come to study your word, to learn about you, to learn about our precious, glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, God, would you open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, let us hear, let us see, let us understand. And Lord, would you be refining us more and more into your likeness, into walking in righteousness and obedience by the grace that you give us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you wanted to win a race against the 2021 Dodge Hellcat, and if you're not familiar with cars, just know that it's fast. 807 horsepower. That's a lot of horses. I don't know last time you, you counted horses, but I'm guessing you didn't get to 807. If you wanted to beat that car, I would recommend driving this car. This particular car. Now, this is a 1984 Mercury wagon, and you've got to be thinking, Chuck, you're an idiot. And while you might not be entirely wrong on that statement, in this case, I think I have a point. See, there's this trend in, um, in, in the car world right now called sleeper cars. And it's a trend, it's not a new trend, it's, it's a trend that's been going. So what they do is they take a car that's very ordinary, 
very plain, very understated, and they just give it a little help. And so in this case, it has a th this particular 1984 Mercury has 1,000 horsepower. And you might be wondering, what does 1,000 horsepower do to a Mercury? It makes it so this Mercury wagon reaches the speed of 155 miles an hour in a little under nine seconds. So if you want to beat a Hellcat, use a Mercury wagon. Now, I want you to imagine, so that, that Mercury wagon went to uh, the 2015 drag race tour and just wowed a bunch of people. I want you to imagine that you know as much about drag racing as you currently do, uh, which I'm guessing for all of us almost is none, and you, you go with your redneck neighbor to the, to the drag racing strip, and, uh, and you see this Mercury pull up, and you see that thing rip out 155 miles an hour like nothing, and your jaw drop. Now, this, this is not heretical, I promise, but imagine, I imagine that that look that you would have on your face is very similar to what the disciples had when they are in a boat, crossing the sea, the storms rage, the waves rage, Jesus is sleeping like a bum in the back of the boat, water's coming on, the experienced fishermen and the tax collector sorts are all thinking we're going to die. They wake up Jesus, don't you care about anything? And he says, peace, be still. And you realize he's not talking to you, he's talking to the waves and the sea, and it just goes quiet. And I think the shock that we would have over seeing that khaki-colored Mercury wagon rip 155 like it's nothing would pale in comparison to the look on the disciples' faces when Jesus says, peace be still, and it goes quiet immediately. And then they start asking each other. I mean, they've seen Jesus do some pretty wild stuff at this point. But then they turn and say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, sure, he can handle the book of Isaiah with authority, but even the wind and the sea obey him. And then they dock. But they don't just dock their boat anywhere. They dock their boat at a very specific place where there is deep spiritual darkness, where the local people have given up hope on resolving this one specific dark spiritual issue on their own. It is a scene of dark helplessness. And maybe that sounds familiar to you this morning. A scene of despair, a scene of I have no idea what's going on, I'm in way over my head, I'm completely lost. Maybe you're in that place now. Well, will you read with me? We're going to read the first 20 verses of Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, 
not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of him. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart their region. And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. There are times and places where we feel the weight of the beginning of this. And it's where we are unable to resolve and contain spiritual darkness. Where we're unable to resolve and contain our, our spiritual darkness, this this burden that we're in, this, this weight. And after having this amazing moment on the sea with Jesus and the disciples, they have this spectacular moment. They set foot on the bank, and instead of like having the opportunity to like kiss the ground and be like, oh, I never thought I'd see land again. Like they don't get that moment. They don't have no time to stretch their back to talk about what they have just encountered, they are immediately confronted with the spiritual darkness. As this man, we know when we read the, the text from Matthew and Luke, this man wore no clothes and he was fierce. So here out of the tombs, you imagine the disciples are getting out of the boat and an angry naked man comes running at them. Like, we laugh because it hasn't happened to us. But you know how horrified you would be if you get out of a boat and this happens. This guy comes running out of the cemetery naked and angry. 
It's freaky. And we, we need to realize this. Like, this is a terrible thing for these people. The spiritual darkness that these people, this town, the herdsmen, the people of the countryside, they were all trying to handle this spiritual darkness on their own. And here we have this man. He's living among the tombs. Three times tombs are mentioned in the first five verses. Mark does not want us to miss the tombs that this guy is in. He doesn't want us to miss the death and the hopelessness around this. We, <laughs> excuse me, we see not only the tombs, we see their, their failed fixes. See, when we have darkness that comes into our life, we try to do something about it, right? And when you have darkness in your home, physical darkness, it's easy. You flip on the light, you get a light switch, you, 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 you get the flashlight on your phone. You, you do things about it. But with spiritual darkness, what do we do? Well, they had a very spiritual problem that they tried to handle in a very physical way. So they tried tying them up. It doesn't work. They tried chains. It doesn't work. They tried chains and shackles. He wrenched the chains apart. The shackles were in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. This man, who was at one time, we assume, part of the community, we know he had friends because Jesus told him to go to his friends at the end. And now he's isolated in the tombs. Everyone's terrified about him. They try everything they physically can to contain him, and none of it works. One of the more popular lines in C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters, and it gets the words rearranged all the time, but it's basically this, that, that people fall into two great temptations. One is that uh, Satan has all the power in the world and there's nothing we can do about him and he's everywhere all the time. And the other is that he's the boogeyman in the closet. Once you open the door, there's nothing there. That, that's my version of it. What we need to realize, and it's something we don't see often in our culture, but it's here, is that there is physical manifestation of spiritual evil. And it is real, and it, there is a power to it. What we're going to see in the text is that power is, is insignificant to none compared to that of the power of Christ. That's what we're going to see. But compared to people on their own, it is much more than we can handle. On our own, we cannot handle it. And it is destructive. Here he is. It's socially destructive. He's isolated. It's physically destructive. He's, he's destroying metal, and he's, the demons are trying to destroy the man through acts of cutting with rocks and stones all night long. We don't know the degree to which this may or may not have been self-inflicted by this man, but we do know that a person doesn't wake up with thousands of demons cooperatively controlling them in this fashion. We also know that for this man, for his family, and for his friends, and for the community, that rock bottom happened a long time ago. 
They were well past rock bottom. They're like on the journey to the center of the earth at this point. But it, there is in here this warning. Is this, this, this has somehow gotten to this place where this man has thousands of demons on him. And there's a, there's a warning in here that's subtle, but we need to say it. And it's this, to guard yourself. Would you guard yourself? There are so many behaviors which are perfectly acceptable in the eyes of the world, but open ourselves up to great spiritual harm. More and more, fortune tellers are becoming acceptable. Mediums are becoming acceptable. Ouija boards are just a normal thing that you do to, to, to try and comfort yourself. Hopefully, you can talk to a, a loved one that you miss Get answers to your questions. Animism is more common and on the surface in our culture than it ever has been, in, in my memory at least. And we have warnings in scriptures against all of these things. But those are not the only paths that Satan and his demons will use to influence people. And, and by people, I do include believers in that. The other big area, and this is maybe what we need more guarding with in our own lives, is that of habitual sin. Are there sins that you are walking in over and over that are just part of your regular life? In Scripture, we have strong warnings against sexual sin, greed, and gossip, and deceit. We have the literal warning in Scripture to take care of your anger appropriately and timely so that Satan does not get a foothold in your life. And so as we realize the real danger of the demonic realm and the destructive intent of the demonic realm, let us guard our hearts against anything remotely tied to witchcraft, to demonism. Let us guard our hearts against sin. Let us, let us take extra measures to make sure the internet and all its allures don't pull us in. Let us find accountability, seek help from the body of Christ. Let us seek forgiveness and reconciliation within our relationships so that Satan does not have a foothold in our marriages, in our families, and in our church. Now, as I'm saying this, and I want us to take our sins seriously so as to give no ground to the evil one, I also want you to know that I'm not worried about any of you committing one particular sin that'll cause you to wake up tomorrow with thousands of demons inhabiting you, okay? Like, I'm just not worried about that. This is not an overnight kind of thing. And as I was writing this message, I was looking at my, my window, like there's my computer monitor, and then a window, and then out that window is the Hoover parking lot. And the most entertaining things happen about 3 to 3.30. <laughs> so as I, as I was literally writing this part about how, how Satan slowly works into our lives and builds up, I saw a young man standing on top of his car, dancing like a little jig. And then like kind of walking and, and kind of lining things up. And I'm like, is he going to jump off? What's he going to do? And then he crawls in through the, the, 
the sunroof and he, he kind of moves around inside the car. And then a few minutes later, someone else was on his car and that person slid down the windshield. And I realized it, it was a Jeep something. At one point, that Jeep was brand new. At one point, that Jeep had not a scuff on it. Everything worked perfectly. I don't know what condition this young man got it in. I don't know what condition it's in now. It looked cleanish from across the street. But I guarantee by the time he's done with it, it's not going to be confused for a new car. <laughs> and over time, a lot of bad decisions are happening with him and his car that are going unchecked, undealt with, unfixed. And that's what can happen with us, is that over time, a lot of bad decisions are going unchecked, unrepented, undealt with. There's not growth. And those bad decisions over time add up. And they give Satan footholds and strongholds in our lives that we need to deal with. And maybe you're at that point where you're, you're not as far as this man was. You know, you're not living in a cemetery. You're all obviously clothed. Speaking to the group here. But the good news is what we see here is that you don't have to get cleaned up before Jesus comes over. Did you hear that? You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to get your life together before Jesus comes. Because where we are unable to resolve and contain our spiritual darkness, Jesus demonstrates his absolute power, authority, and his tender mercy for us. This guy, like, we, we have this notion that like, oh, I got to get my act together and then I can go to church. Then I can go to Jesus. I got to make myself acceptable to God. No, God makes you acceptable to God. God comes to you in your darkness. God comes to you in your helplessness. And the authority of Christ comes, moves in there. His tender mercy acts. And what happens is regeneration and salvation and change. And so how do we see the authority of Christ portrayed? Well, we see it, first of all, in his interaction with Legion. So here we have the town, the whole region. They can do nothing about this guy. Jesus steps foot on the bank. Legion runs to him, falls down on his face, not in worship, but in forced submission at the very sight of Jesus and starts begging and groveling. Isaiah tells us, that Jesus is, he's like a dry root out of the ground. There is nothing to attract us to him as far as appearance goes. Kind of like a 1984 Mercury. But it's an 84 with a whole lot of power. And so Jesus steps on. These guys, Mark tells this beautifully. Everyone's just gone, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Jesus, I imagine, just kind of has a smirk. He's like, just wait a few minutes. If you think you have questions now, it's going to get weird. And this fierce, naked man comes running out of the cemetery, falls on the ground, begging. And Jesus is saying, come out of him, come out of him. Jesus' concern 
is squarely placed on this man who's been in torment from these demons. And Legion is begging, Son of the Most High God, are you here to torment us? I mean, this is, this legion of demons knows that it is completely outmatched with the Son of God. Do not torment me. Just send, don't even kick me out of the region. Just send me to the pigs. Just please send us to the pigs. Begging and pleading and groveling. What was unbindable, uncontrollable, is now in compulsive submission at the very sight of Jesus. And Jesus does the most shocking thing. He says, okay. And he sends them to the pigs. And the pigs, these 2,000 pigs, rush down the hillside and they drown themselves. And here's what we need to know. We, okay, like I'm a, I'm a dog owner. I love, I love animals. Jesus doesn't care a dot about these 2,000 pigs to compare, compared to how he views this man made in God's likeness. Now, as we look at the text, as we study, we can, it's very safe to assume this is a Gentile region. They've crossed the sea. They've gone to the next, they've gone to the next county. It's full of Gentiles. This is a Gentile man. It's Gentile onlookers, farming pigs, because Jews never would. And Jesus... Son of David, who there's this expectation that he's going to make Israel great again. He's going to raise it up. He's going to overthrow Rome. Cares more about this Gentile man than 2,000 head of livestock. Do not, do not underestimate your value as someone made in the image of God. Do not underestimate the value of the person who drives you absolutely mad who is made in the image of God. That stamp made in the image of God means so much. Do not undervalue that. But Jesus here, he has authority. They're his pigs. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And we're going to see in a little bit, the pigs, like they, they almost become an afterthought for everyone. Because then it goes to the herdsmen who are like, what just happened? They freak out. They start running and telling everyone on their way to the city and on their way back, they're telling everyone what has just happened. They get back, the herdsmen, verse 14, they told it to the city, the country, and people came to see what had happened. I imagine these guys are going, you're never going to believe. This guy started talking to the crazy dude at the tombs, and then all of a sudden our pigs freaked out and ran out. We need to go stop this guy. And then they get back, and they see the most amazing thing. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. It's a transformation inside and out for this guy. And they were afraid. They went from being angry about their livestock to terrified of someone who could so quickly transform this guy that they couldn't bind with chains and shackles. And they, they, 
And then those who had seen it described what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they begged Jesus to depart. They have no interest in making him pay for their pigs. They have no interest in stoning the dude for ruining their income. They, they realize something about Jesus that we just, it's too much for us, and they beg him to leave. Paul talks about the aroma of Christ being that of life for those who are saved and death for the world. And here we see that as people come and there's, there's one man desiring to go with Jesus and a whole group of people saying, you're too powerful for us, would you just leave? See, everyone knew who this man was. Everyone. You look at the lengths they went to contain him. He's completely unbindable from the human perspective, but Jesus is not an ordinary person. He looks ordinary, but there, and there's nothing to attract us to him, but he is indeed quite extraordinary, and he is beyond that. In fact, these thousands of demons, which have no doubt caused fear and trauma for quite some time in this region, are now in the presence of Christ begging, groveling, not looking for a challenger, not looking for someone else they can chase off, but just trying to not get tormented. And the captivating thing here about Jesus is not his power. What should, what should captivate us about Christ here is not this overwhelming power that he has over cosmic forces, but the way in which he uses it. He's, he is just and caring. His concern is not the demons, although their concern is him. His concern is this man made in the likeness of God. And this is all about his mercy. I mean, think about your favorite superhero movie. The hero has power and benevolent motivation. If you, if you just want benevolent motivation with no power, you might get me at best. If you want the power without benevolent motivation, you get Darth Vader. Jesus doesn't just have a limited extreme power like the Avengers. He has unlimited power and unlimited benevolence. Limitless power matched with lavish mercy. And this guy, the man, wants to go with Jesus. Let me come with you and Jesus. And that would have been so easy because there's no doubt like every social bridge in this guy's life has been burned by this point. And it would have been so easy for him. Like he would have been leaving nothing to follow Jesus but it was a great sacrifice to stay and testify about Christ. And so Jesus says, go to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he commissions him. And we see the response in the Decapolis to Christ's power and mercy is that of marveling at him. And it's really easy to, in a message like this, saying we have these problems, we can't do, so we just need to come to Jesus. And so I want to ask, in light of this, that, that Jesus demonstrates his absolute authority and tender mercy for us, how in the world then do we come to Jesus? And if you're here this morning and you don't know that you've ever come to Jesus, I want you to first of all know that Jesus came to you first. That we love because God first loved us. That before you were born, God loved you. 
He sent His Son to die for you. And so then we need to utilize His methods and not our own. Because our methods are, well, let me show you how good I can be. Let me show you what I'm capable of. Let me show you my worth. His methods are turn and repent. Receive His mercy. Have faith in His promise. And then it's it's like a shampoo bottle. Because then I would just say repeat. Turn, repent, believe, repeat. Because over and over again, the Christian life is one of like, oh, I just, I mean, on my way here this morning, I'm repenting of sin. And trusting that as I repent, God is cleansing me of unrighteousness through his mercy and grace. And then grow in God's word and in the body of Christ. We started our adult Bible fellowships this morning. We relaunched what we had done for a long time in three classes. I heard from three people, myself being one of them. And, and, and the, the tension in the church right now is that there are three broad opinions as to who has the best class, I think. And so make sure you find a way to grow in God's word. Get a friend to go with you. Forgive people. Embrace his methods and not your own. So how you come to Christ is by trusting his methods, trusting his grace, trusting his mercy. And then there's a question we need to ask as believers of how do we follow Jesus in this? Because at the end of this, you know, I think we need to like steal a little bit of the thunder of some of the guys in Acts because here's our first missionary of Christ. Jesus says, go and tell. And this is so different than what we've heard before, but Jesus is sending him to a Gentile area to tell about the Lord's power and the Lord's mercy. And I want you to know this, as you think, I need to follow Jesus, where am I following Jesus to? Know, first of all, that there's nowhere too dark for Jesus. There's nowhere too spiritually dark for Jesus. This is an extreme example. This guy's possessed by thousands of demons. And it, Jesus just walks in, and it changes. So pray, you know, it, I learned this a few years ago in perspectives. We, let's not pray for those who seem far from God because God is omnipresent, but let's pray that the darkness in their lives would be removed. Pray that the light of Christ would shine. Know who you are by knowing who Christ is. The commission here in verse 19 is what we need. Go tell your friends what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Know who you are as a child of God. That the Lord used his unbelievable, limitless power to make your adoption into his family possible. And then tell people, here's what God has done for me. Here's the mercy he has shown me. And maybe you think, Well, Chuck, I don't know if you know my testimony, but I grew up in a Christian family and accepted Christ at a young age. Do you believe the gospel? Because the gospel teaches that you, at one point in your life, maybe still are, were hostile towards God in your flesh. If you accepted Christ, if you came to realize that Jesus is my Savior at the age of five, then the first four years of your life, you were an enemy of God. If you came to know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior at the age of 27, then the first 26 years of your life, you were hostile towards God. You were an enemy of God. Ephesians tells us that we 
were children of wrath like the rest of mankind following the prince of the power of the air, chasing after the passions of our flesh and our minds. But God, who is rich in mercy, seats us in the heavenly places with Christ. I don't care when you accepted Christ. You received the same mercy as this man, and you need just as much mercy as this man. That's what the gospel teaches us. That we need this mercy. And I pray in my own life that God would just beat down my pride that makes me think that I've gotten here somehow on my own. I am a recipient of the mercy of God. And if you're a believer here this morning, so are you. So let us tell people what the Lord has done for us and the mercy he's shown. Let's pray. Father God, you are so kind. You are so good to us. And Lord, as we wrestle with darkness, as we wrestle with loss, Lord, would you reveal to us where your authority is, that no matter what it is that we are in, that your authority is over that, that you love us as image bearers of your Father, and, you, and that Jesus, that you've died for our sins that you've given us mercy so we can have life through you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.